good morning. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events, places, and people we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. On today's show, we'll be discussing one of the great transformative movements in 19th century America, the Second Great Awakening. This movement brought about a serious upswing in religious thought in America following the Revolutionary War. From this religious awakening came a dramatic increase in membership to various church denominations, as well as the genesis of a number of new denominations. The effects of the Second Great Awakening spanned the North American continent and crossed over into new social and political reforms that helped shape American society. I'm joined today in the studio by my co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcombe, professor of history at Columbia State Community College, along with Father Christopher Bowie, rector of St. Peter's Episcopal Church in Columbia, Tennessee. Father Bowie is a graduate of the University of California, Berkeley, with undergraduate degrees in history and English, a Bachelor of Sacred Theology from St. Joseph of Arimathea Anglican Theological College, also in Berkeley, and an MA in English from Stanford University. Father Bowie is also the host of the Circle Unbroken radio show, which airs daily on this radio station. Good morning to you both. Morning, Tom. How are you? Today's show is my favorite kind of history's hook. It starts very locally and leads to a much bigger story. Father Bowie, your research on this particular topic, the Second Great Awakening, started with a tombstone. Uh, can you explain that? All great episodes in history begin with a tombstone. Um, every year uh, we do a pilgrimage, except for this year, sadly, to St. John's Ashwood, a, a plantation church about six miles to the south uh, west of Columbia. And it's, it's a great service. It's a very old church, no water, no electricity, uh, air conditioning through the open windows. And at the close of every service, uh, there's a procession. Imagine a, a bunch of little girls wearing white robes, carrying, you know, roses. And we go visit the six different uh, tombstones of bishops, Episcopal bishops, who were buried there. And I noticed uh, this year, maybe two years ago, uh, Bishop James Hervey Odie, who was the first Episcopal bishop in the Diocese of Tennessee, has this really stunning uh, uh, tombstone. And written on either side of it are these two phrases. First, it says, the first bishop of the Holy Catholic Church in Tennessee. And then the opposite side says, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth from all sin. Now, this would seem to be just a host of contradictions because, you know, holy Catholic church. Wait a minute. I thought these were Protestants. What are we doing claiming a Catholic identity? And then, of course, the, the blood of Jesus Christ uh, uh, cleanseth from all sin, a, a very kind of evangelical tone of the saving grace of Christ through the blood of the Lamb, the need for salvation, the need for a Savior. How do you reconcile the Episcopal uh, uh, identity of of with this word Catholic and the Episcopal identity with um, evangelical. And so, I mean, in short, the answer is, you know, as you know, the, the word Catholic, lowercase c, means universal, right? So of the universal church as opposed to a sectarian or a, a bit of the church. And then the uh, evangelical side comes from zeal. 
that uh, Odie is the fellow who comes here. He found St. Peter's in Columbia. He found St. Paul's in Franklin, in, instrumental in founding Christ Church in Nashville, and was all over the place and fueled by this kind of zeal for our Lord, but also for establishing an Episcopal identity in Tennessee. So the time frame is important. He's born in 1800, if I remember correctly. Right. So by the time he becomes a bishop, I think uh, about 1833. Correct. He's in got his a... early 30s. Right. And but Tennessee and where he is, his his place here, I think is is critical to understanding both that dichotomy of the word Catholic and this whole idea of evangelicalism that's that's happening in this area too. We term sort of that religious revivalism that's happening in America is the second great awakening. Can you what's what's your best definition? What what do we mean by this second great awakening? The second great awakening um, you know early 19th century religious movement uh the prairie fire uh, of of uh, we we envisioned uh tent side preaching and uh, uh circuit riders and there's this outpouring of the spirit uh originating in Kentucky uh, and parts of Tennessee, and then kind of gathering, gathering momentum and going throughout kind of the entire west of the United States. Right. And so this space, this area, Middle Tennessee at that time in Kentucky, this is the western frontier. Right. So this fire, this religious fire, this zeal that's coming about is happening because of that. Is that is that right? It's because this is the West. Yes, There's... this is the outpost of civilization. Further West is outer space, is, is you know, Star Wars land with odd creatures and the unknown. <laughs> this is the, the, the leaping off place to the West. And so the religious identity of the West in many ways is fueled by what happens here, by spilling to the, you know, Southwest from uh, the Carolinas uh, and, and then here, and then Pushing to the to the Midwest from here. What's then. what's the fuel for the fire? I guess is is my question. Next question. This is the Western frontier. Why why does America need a religious revival? What's going on? And, and Barry, you can pitch in on this as well. What's going on in America that that is sort of the fuel for a, a massive religious revival that's going to change the course of really America altogether? Well, I think there's I think there's a bit of a, of a reaction to the Enlightenment thinking. And wanting to get a little bit back to to that old time religion, and then there are the the churches and the religious leaders that are trying to figure out how they can follow their flock out to the west. Right. So, um, following the Revolutionary War, I, I think we start to see a shift in the country. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, from sort of moving away from, at that point in time, they're kind of moving away from religious thought and, and moving towards more secular thought. Deism becomes a, a, a major uh, driving force in the country. I think the Pope family is a great example of that, that sort of quintessential frontier family moving from North Carolina to Tennessee. Those initial Pope family members uh, who are all Revolutionary War veterans are, are religious people, but are strongly against organized religion, interestingly enough. Ezekiel Polk, uh, President Polk's grandfather, is a, a great example uh, where a fervent believer in God, but absolutely turns his back on, on religious construct. It's a, it's a construct of man, not of God. So he sort of turns his back on that. And he's sort of this, this frontiersman who's going from North Carolina, he's coming to Tennessee, 
Um, but he he starts to see that shift happening here in Tennessee as well. Methodism is starting to gain ground, and, and this is sort of the ground zero for this, as you said, this religious revivalism that's happening. It comes from Kentucky, uh, it spreads to Tennessee, and and moves forward from there. So as the frontier continues to move west, religion sort of follows this path, and. I guess I go back to what West means. It's a it's a place where there's not a great deal of uh, uh, justice necessarily. I, I think people on the frontier need a religion more than uh, more than anywhere else in the country. I find it interesting that the Second Great Awakening sparks in the West and then heads back east, and we'll we'll talk more about that in in, in a minute. Uh, let's go back just a second. To have a Second Great Awakening uh, means there was probably a First Great Awakening as well. What do we what do we know about? about that. When did that take place? So we're talking about 1730s through the 1760s. And uh, we're thinking of the Wesley brothers. And we're thinking of, of <laughs> my favorite tortured soul, uh, Jonathan Adams, who's, you know, sinners in the hand of an angry God, the legendary uh, uh, sermon. Uh, George Whitfield is the strong uh, evangelist, actually uh, uh, an Anglican uh, cleric who comes to the States and preaches thousands of sermons and, and is this incredibly theatrical person as opposed to Edwards who's, I mean, we think the sinners in the hand of an angry God that he's pounding fire and brimstone on, on the pulpit, but no, he's actually famous for being completely almost still and delivering these horrible images of, you know, mankind being like uh, a spider in the hands of, 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 a, of an angry God over a fire, but, but he's delivering all this with a completely almost... A monotone way, and people are completely captivated by this. They're, I'm getting chills thinking about it because they're they, they're falling out. It's this uh, whether it's through the theatricality of Whitfield or the more steady presentation of Edwards. You've got this Jonathan Edwards is what I meant to say. Sorry that um, it is a kindling of emotion uh, that is a part of the reaction against this certainly European Enlightenment, but also the American expression of it, which is more interested in simplicity and rationality and being somewhat and educated and cultured, and in other words, being English. <laughs> and so the Americans, uh, uh, there's the surge of interest in the First Great Awakening. Interestingly, appeals primarily to people who are already part of church congregations. Hence, it's a reawakening, right? And so they're trying to preach to the, the ostensibly converted but whether it's to the uh, Presbyterians who are uh, uh, structured in their, by and large, governed by, by Presbyters, or the Anglicans who are into uh, not only religious structure, but also uh, you know, English subjects under the crown, there is this emotional push against that and trying to go more deeply into an emotional relig religious experience. So as opposed to the Presbyterians, like good Calvinists who, and I'm talking, you know, I'm no insult to present Presbyterians, um, that, that instead of showing that you are saved by doing good works, showing that you're part of the elect, you want to know that you're saved through an emotional validation of, of, of a, prof your heart strangely warmed. So the first great awakening is a pushback. How does it differ from the second great awakening? What is, what is the impetus for that? I don't want to that, dominate that you could the compare. Second Great Awakening is more, you know, obviously rooted in the Southeast or what I'm used to calling the Southeast, the West. Um, and it's a larger appeal to people outside of church communities because, of course, I mean, these tent revivals are, are classic examples. You, you, you have frontier people 
who are not even around, in many cases, towns, so therefore not around churches. So they will travel up to 100 miles, you know, bringing their families with them for this religious experience. And so they're not a part of established church identities. Therefore, these appeals, these emotional appeals, draw people in. Uh, it is therefore, uh, in many ways, forging a denominational religious uh, identity of people who didn't have one. So let's talk about what it looks like. Um, as you said, on the Western frontier, these people are looking for religion. They don't necessarily have a church in their community yet. There are preachers that are sort of spread around the frontier. How, how are they gathering and what does that look like? I guess the closest analogy that I can think of, and it's, it's, it works in a lot of ways, but it falls apart in others, is um, first couple of years we, we moved to Tennessee. Uh, our daughter was a freshman, and, and when she was a freshman and sophomore in high school, we went to Bonnaroo. <laughs> and um, that's the closest parallel I can think of, that you've got, what is it, 80,000 people who are going to Bonnaroo. And, and the, the powerful thing about Bonnaroo is it's not just one stage. You've got a multitude of stages, right? The which stage, the what stage, the other stage. And then you've got a series of smaller stages all around there of different groups are playing all the time. And, and so first off, you've got the draw of the people who are coming for this ecstatic experience <laughs> achieved by one way or another. And then, uh, uh, but the second thing is uh, the, the, the first year we went, um, a friend used to work alongside some artists. So we got an artist pass, which was very, very cool. Talk about being in the elect, right? And so we're, we're backstage and we're seeing the artists and they are cross-pollinating with one another. And they're learning from one another, teaching other styles. They're connecting these relationships. That is what a tentside revival looks like. That you've got, I mean, I can paint a different picture with more, you know, historically accurate details. But the two phenomena are there. You've got the draw of people from far away coming in you know, the, the, the um, was it the Cane Ridge Revival in Kentucky? You've got 10% of the entire population of the state there. Um, so you're drawing all these people who are having this experience and then returning home, almost like having a viral influence. But then you've got the religious leadership, the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Baptists are all, the preachers are all preaching together alongside one another. They're learning one another's tricks of the trade, as it were. And so they're all carrying this, this style of preaching no matter where they go. Uh, all the denominations that are participating uh, catch fire. Yeah, so let, let's flesh this out a little bit. So people are gathering, they're traveling in their carriages and horses, they're going to this spot. The Cane Ridge Revival you mentioned is sort of that, that very first, the, the very first revival I think that's talked about. It's kind of the spark that leads to so much more after that. So it's Cane Ridge uh, in Kentucky. Uh, so people are gathering in their thousands. Uh, stages are built, just yes. like you're, so they have wooden stages uh, right. raised above the masses. How long are they staying? How long do these revivals last? They last as long as a week. Again, Bonnaroo parallel. It's, it's multiple days. They are all pitching tents, you know, a, a tent-side revival, campsite revival, because even if there were hotels in these places, they're already, you know, completely booked, taken over. So you've got, you know, uh, uh, hundreds of tents everywhere. And, and just think about lo the logistics of this, you know, like Bonnaroo, food, uh, uh, waste, imagine the level of complexity of all this. So they come and they gather on the first day. 
And uh, the person who's organizing it, there were 18 different Presbyterian ministers who organized the first one at Cain Ridge. And they come out and there's like an opening prayer and an, an introductory sermon. And it, it's all actually pretty, it, it becomes very liturgical. There's a way you do it. And so on day one, a, a preacher after preacher will deliver a sermon, usually on, on sin, on the first day. <laughs> you know, come out with a bang, and 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 then the next day uh, you would shift into uh, a need for redemption, right? And and in the meantime, you've got these. I mean, it's one preacher after another, except layered in there, you'll have these hymns. The music of the revival cannot be. Uh, uh, I mean, I, it, it's incredible what how the musical presentation develops, and I should. But comment further, please. Um. I wanted to ask you about that. When, when I was growing up in the Methodist church, and I guess I was always interested in history, and whenever we would we'd sing a hymn, I would always look down to see who the, uh, the author who wrote the words and the music to that hymn, and, and it would have their birth dates and death dates. And uh, it, it seemed to me growing up, most of the hymns that we sung and still sing in the Methodist Church are after the Civil War, post-Civil War. And now there's some of the Charles Wesley hymns from the 18th century. Uh, There's there's that great hymn, Rock of Ages, by Augustus M. Toplady. You know, you never can forget that name. (laughs) And, but I'm wondering about these hymns, what were the hymns that they sang? For a crowd that is at least partially illiterate, you know, you can't, and even if they weren't, you can't print enough hymnals, right, to pass around. So they're very much uh, a congregational res- response. What will happen is a preacher will get on a, on a roll, right? And you know that the, the rhetorical technique of the repeating of the key word in multiple sentences or the repeating of a key phrase. And what would happen would be someone, and by the way, during these sermons, people are shouting out and spontaneous prayers. It is, again, back to, back to Bonnaroo. And so um, someone will catch one of those phrases and begin to spontaneously develop a song around it like repeating it and making it melodic, and other people begin to join around. Uh, um, this is uh, when we were waiting in line to go see, I'm trying to, uh, it might have been Cage of the Elephant. Uh, the crowd in the line spontaneously begins to sing Bohemian Rhapsody. There's just this this group thing that takes over. So that's one form of how the music, the, the music develops. The second is that uh, you'll have... Uh, trained singers or the trained preachers who will lead and then there's a, a standard response of you know hallelujah where the congregation sings the one word or one phrase in response to it so it's as opposed to hymns where a writer sits down and crafts you know very technical you know notation and words it's hot and sweaty living presentation very much uh, lived music uh, uh, coming from this emotional uh, uh, experience. So, uh, you know, you've got sin on day one, redemption on day two, maybe three. I don't know how many days you go for sin. And then uh, you get to uh, sanctification, maybe day three or four. And at this point, I mean, people are barking like dogs. They're falling out, being slain in the spirit. Uh, uh, They're grabbing one another, you know, compelling one another uh, to, to be saved, to go forward. Uh, uh, there's a, a, it's the origin of the altar call, 
when uh, people were coming forward to be to be fully baptized in in, in immersion. Um, and so it is this emotional peak that builds up like a fever. Um, and so then they, you know, finish and then they go home with their lives uh, transformed. It's, it's as opposed to the Calvinist understanding that you are predestined to be saved, you know, the violation, as, as some saw it, of, of free will, it is uh, an affirmation of individual assertion of, that we can determine, right? You can see the political implications. We can determine our state of salvation based upon our response, not so much in good works, although that comes in later, but when you have, when you have the emotional experience, then you can come forward and choose to be saved, which is very compelling. Uh, at this time in American history. That's great. I think we need to take our first break. Let's listen to our sponsors. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today, we're talking about one of the great transformative movements in 19th century America, the Second Great Awakening. I'm joined in the studio today by Dr. Barry Gidcombe, my co-host, along with Father Christopher Bowie, uh, who is the rector of St. Peter's Church in Columbia, Tennessee. Uh, Father Bowie, we were just talking about, you just gave us a wonderful description of uh, one of these camp revivals that became so prevalent, sort of the the uh, maybe greatest symbol of, of the Second Great Awakening. Um, but I'm fascinated. So thousands of people gather together, spending about a week together, basically camping, hearing these incredible sermons. Uh, they're kind of whipped up into a frenzy through the week, and then they go home. What's the next step? How is that message then spreading? Are the, are the people taking the word back, and how is that having an impact on churches in their communities? Yeah, how do you avoid the uh, summer camp, church camp <laughs> experience where my father talked about being saved any number of times, depending upon the number of cute girls that were at his summer camp? <laughs> um, so you've got uh, the, the, the durability of the conversion, first off, rests in the influence on women, which uh, the majority of the religious experiences, the majority of the conversions are taking place with women. And there, there are complex reasons behind that, but, uh, and certainly some major consequences that come out of that. Uh, the women are, you know, there are no schools, not yet, so the women at home are responsible for raising the children. They are inculcating the faith of their experience into their children, or if there's a collective effort amongst the parents, you know, they're all doing it together. But also, um, the explosion in the number of, of preachers. So therefore, you can have these colonies of, of faith, faithful homes that the circuit riders can go to and, and find a place of welcome. Um, you know, side note, part of the, uh, um, the prairie fire of the Methodist movement, uh, you know, the Methodists originally were uh, a subset of the Church of England, of the Anglicans. Um, and part of the, the deal that they had with the Anglican Church prior to the Revolution was that, okay, we will preach, but we will not baptize and we will not celebrate the, the Lord's Supper. You guys have got that. And the Anglicans were like, okay, we got that. After the American Revolution, the Anglican Church is just eviscerated. 
for obvious reasons. I mean, if, if you've got a Church of England and you're praying for the king and you've got a group of people who just fought a revolution to get away of the influence of the king, I mean, that's going to hurt your market, right? So the number of clergy are wiped out. So what that means for the, for the Wesleyans, for the Methodists, is that sacramental superstructure, that, that administrative superstructure of, of priests and deacons and bishops is stripped away. You can't find a priest. Uh, because most of them have fled to Canada, uh, like like in the Vietnam War, they're out of there, and so therefore the what the the Methodists are saying, well, wait a minute, we've got souls to save, and so that's when they start baptizing and they start administering the the Lord's Supper. So the Methodist movement uh, is uh, uh, unchained from the the, the restricting f- uh, force, the administrative and doctrinal restricting force of the the Church of England. Therefore. Um, with the explosion of faithful households and the explosion of the number of preachers filled with evangelical zeal, things uh, uh, continually spread uh, um, from village to village, home to home, uh, uh, supported by those, those faithful uh, uh, homes, places where they can stay, and places where they can plan their next step, their next trip on horseback, buggy, you know, whatever they can find. So we see a big uptick in... In clergy, yes. the number of people who are actually becoming ministers of a church, are we seeing that same upswing in membership in churches across the country? Yeah, well, uh, all the churches are are growing just because of the size of the of the population is growing. I mean, that's. Uh, but you know, um, the uh, the Anglican churches in Virginia, which had been at two hundred ninety before. The Revolutionary War to this day now only have 35 in their whole diocese. So, but even so, even the the Episcopalians by 18, I want to say 60s gets to about a thousand congregations. But the Methodists uh, are at 19,000. Uh, the Baptists are 10,000. Um, other congregations are growing. The Congregationalists are third, but kind of a distant third. And then the Catholics, Lutherans, Episcopalians, uh, and then leaving, of course, all the other groups that have uh, originally were prior to the Great Awakening. They're, they're they're growing, but no one can catch up with the Methodists and the Baptists. It's fascinating. I don't think of Presbyterians, uh, the Presbyterian Church, as sort of ones that would participate in a great frenzy <laughs> in, in the mid nineteenth century, but they are. Is there any pushback? To the, from the more established churches back east when they're hearing about these initial revivals in the West. Yes, it, what it does, all of this movement uh, in many ways forges a denominational identity. Uh, you know, the, the Presbyterian movement had been fairly, uh, I don't want to say idiosyncratic, but this is not a, a, a united group. You have the presbyters, local rule, as it were, or the Congregationalists who have the same theology but led by leadership of the congregation. So the Presbyterians become more of a national movement because they want to collect their resources and send money and people out to the West. So therefore, that draws the Presbyterians together. Same thing with the Episcopalians, who, although they're way late to the game, it's not until 1835, so we're, you know, a third of the way into uh, the century before money starts really coming uh, from the Episcopalians. Uh, But that's another uh, complicated issue. So what it does is it forges an identity for these denominations based on their their common desire to push to the West, to to care for the existing flocks that are growing, but also to feed the fire 
of, of continuing the growth. I think if if I recall, the Presbyterians were a little uh, uh, disturbed about the original Great Awakening because they it felt like that to them that it threatened their uh, educated clergy. And it seems like in the Second Great Awakening, when the Presbyterians start to get involved, they also bring this component of, of education to the frontier. It's the Presbyterians that are starting these academies in Tennessee and on the frontier as well. The school movement becomes very strong uh, in these traditions. Um, you know, it, it, if you're going to have people reading Bibles, they have to be literate. So therefore, you have an increase in religious tracts and publications, uh, increase in—I'm uh, um, forgetting the universities that have been found are being founded during this time. Uh, uh, schooling and, and you know, uh, uh, St. Peter's to this day really owes its existence to uh, James Hervey Odie came was a school teacher at an academy uh, um, just for, I think around Spring Hill is what no right across from where Zion. Uh, Presbyterian school is right now. So there is an academy right there. It is the educational movement that in many ways draws the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians together. That is, and in fact, Thomas Jefferson was talking about these evangelical, so we're skipping back a little bit, uh, the, the evangelical Anglicans, he called them the American Jesuits because they would uh, infiltrate, as it were, people's homes and towns by offering education the way the Jesuits would um, in the Church of England in, um, you know, 16th, 17th centuries. Yeah, I think Columbia is a great example of that as well. A number of academies and schools that come about here, female institutions. Right. The Columbia Female Institute is one which was started by the Episcopal Church, I believe, um, and the Athenaeum School also had religious roots uh, uh, in the course of its history, and those schools were bringing in young women from all over the country, but it was absolutely rooted in this idea of education, which is, you know, underpinned by this religious revivalism. But, and it's a two-edged sword, because if you're appealing to the educated folks, to the elite, I mean, that's great. I mean, that's how you, 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 you're capturing the leadership of the community, and that makes perfect sense, but a lot of these uh, preachers are not speaking the language of the people. And so, I mean, <laughs> read some of these sermons by some of the, you know, I'm, of course, I'm reading more of the Episcopalian sermons from the Northeast in, you know, 18th century. And oh, my word, it is brutal. I mean, very, it sounds very deistic almost hmm. because it's very dry, very abstract, very doctrinal, uh, uh, beating up on other heresies, which if you're in the frontier, you don't really care about the heretical tendencies of a denomination that you don't even know about. You're looking for uh, comfort, renewal, uh, a, a sense of purpose in the middle of complete uh, unpredictability. Uh, so therefore, yes, the educational component is important for the leadership of those denominations, but things really take off when you can tap into the language of the people, the common language. Right. So that's fascinating. So you have these thousands of people who are coming in. The, the masses are coming to these camp revivals, but the sermons are learned. Well, no, I'm sorry. So that is the, the um, antecedent to these uh, revival sermons. Okay. So if you're coming from Massachusetts... And uh, uh, you've been hearing these, you, you would hear, if you go there at that time, you would be hearing the, the dry abstract you know, thing. But then you come to uh, Kentucky, and you're not hearing uh, Christological arguments or, or, or even, 
I mean, oh my goodness. Um, you're hearing this fire in the belly, uh, emotional experience that, that, that corresponds with the fr frontier spirit of, of taking on uh, uh, an active life and not a, 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 an intellectual life, merely intellectual. Did any new religions or Christian denominations newly form uh, as a result of the Second Great Awakening? Well, yes. Uh, we think certainly that the, the Churches of Christ and the American uh, um, uh, Restoration Movement um, which, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, you've got the Disciples of Christ. You've got uh, the, the Mormon movement comes out of the same. The Mormons are a classic example of what the Second Great Awakening is all about. That You've got a, a charismatic leader, right? The dynamic preacher, Joseph Smith. You've got um, the other great difference between the First and the Second Great Awakening, at, you know, not only in terms of market, uh, is in its focus on what the purpose of the church is supposed to be. The First Great Awakening is focusing on personal salvation, on, on sanctity, on this emotional renewal. The Second Great Awakening has that, but is also focused on the second coming of Christ and the kingdom of Christ being established here on earth, and therefore uh, to build up a, a, a place uh, worthy of his arrival. So therefore, when Joseph Smith talks about building Zion in, whether it's Nauvoo or, or you know, Salt Lake City with Brigham Young, you're, you're, you're looking at a complete personification, a representation of what the Second Great Awakening is all about. Um, now, the Churches of Christ and, and, and that Restoration Movement are really focused on as there's increased fragmentation. And, and I should say that the Baptist Movement, or even to a certain extent, the Methodist Movement is not monolithic. Uh, a lot of this does depend upon the personality of the preacher. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Uh, you know, it, you need to be able to connect personally with the way that the word is being delivered. So I, I respect that very much. No, no offense intended against any of that. But when it's focused on the personality of the preacher, and maybe the preachers have not gone through a whole lot of intensive theological training, and if there's no overarching... Uh, authority that can rein in some extreme points of view, uh, then you've got uh, fragmentation. And so the American Restoration Movement, the Campbell, you know, uh, Alexander, they're focusing on true Christian union, uh, following the essential, what, what they understand to be the essential teachings of Christ, the way that the Christians actually behaved in the time of the Gospels, in the hope of bringing all the Christians together. And of course, um, also begins to fragment. I mean, that just seems to be the American way of life. <laughs> we, we constantly uh, affect revolutions, constantly assert uh, autonomy and personal liberty. It's tough to keep a group together uh, in our culture. If I remember correctly, the Cumberland Presbyterian Church is sort of founded around the idea that there were not a great many uh, uh, scholarly preachers out there, but they needed them and saw a way to ordain new ministers without having a strong educational background. Right. The Cumberland Presbyterian Movement actually uh, originates in a difference that starts in the, the First Great Awakening between the old doctrine Presbyterians that are very much focused on, uh, well, obviously doctrinal stances and those doctrinal type sermons that we were talking about. Uh, uh, the new 
uh, uh, side are focused on these revivals in the First Great Awakening. Now, they managed to kind of keep it together. There are distinctions. There's a family feud, but they keep it together. It is around the time of the Second Great Awakening that the old doctrine Presbyterians kick the new uh, Presbyterians out in this Cumberland movement. And so that is where the, the division comes out. It's, yes, it's an origination of a new denomination, but it's really uh, growth by division. I think that happens February 4th, 1810 uh, is the exact date near what later would become Burns, Tennessee, in a log home of, of Reverend Samuel McAdow. He and Reverend Finnis Ewing uh, and I think Samuel King uh, reorganized Cumberland, the Cumberland Presbytery uh, at that point in time. We need to take our second break. Uh, we'll be right back on History Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about the Second Great Awakening, and we are featuring today Father Christopher Bowie, rector of St. Peter's Church in Columbia, Tennessee. Father Bowie, uh, I know in your research you parsed some very interesting statistics related to the rise of religion with the Second Great Awakening. For instance, uh, membership in the Methodist Church increased from about 58,000 to over 2.5 million. Are we seeing an increase in all Christian religions uh, as a result of this? You're seeing growth everywhere. Um, and it, we mentioned part of that is just sheer demographics of the country, as more and more people are coming in. Um, the, the challenge always is uh, leadership. That, I think, is the governing factor. Uh, when you can have, again, th this was the Episcopalian's problem, and I'm sorry to, to keep, but that's, that's what I know. Talk about what you know. Um, the challenge for the Episcopalians was the focus on uh, ordination, which can only be done by a bishop. And uh, so you can't have priests, you can't have deacons without bishops. After the, the uh, American independence, the Church of England is extraordinarily reluctant to ordain any Americans as bishops, which is not just bitterness, but you have to think about the way you, you, you could do that. It would require journeys by sea, which are not terribly, you know, uh, health-friendly. Uh, and so eventually, uh, uh, long story short, it's, I want to say... Ten years before we get the first bishop, Samuel Seabury, and it's about another five years before we get a second bishop. And this becomes important because in the polity of the Episcopal Church, like the Church of England, uh, you have to have three bishops operating together to form another bishop. So you just can't have one person ordaining another person. So finally getting the three bishops, finally we can start populating uh, uh, the churches, finally you can start ordaining priests— uh, and in our polity, you cannot have a Eucharist without a priest there, right? So if you don't have many bishops, you don't have many priests. Uh, therefore, you don't have congregations that are focused on uh, the sacramental life. That's what part of the, 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 the choking uh, mechanism for uh, the Episcopal Church. When you have the Methodist movement, uh, which is not as restrained. I mean, there are bishops in the Methodist movement for sure, but um, uh you have much greater um, autonomy in these communities of, of where a, a call to ordination comes from. Uh, same thing, I mean, the, the Congregationalists, right, the Baptists, you feel the call, you're invited by a congregation, and you're off to the races, or you're preaching on your own and a congregation gathers around you. So the growth really is a, has, is a factor, uh, is dependent upon the leadership and the ordained nature. Who are some of the key leaders in the Second Great Awakening, or that our listeners might want to read more about. 
second great awakening leadership. Um, well, I'm, you know, I'm focusing, still caught up on the on the first great uh, awakening. I think that um, hold on here. There was there are three phases of the second great awakening. Um, First, in about 1795 to 1810, the Cambridge Revival in Kentucky that we were talking about. Phase two is 1810 to 1825, more focused on the Northeast. So the first phase is the more classic uh, tent revival. Second phase, shifting to revivals in congregations themselves. And then, uh, you know, in, in Northeastern church settings. And then the third phase, going to about 1835, are focused on urban centers. And so this is when you have revivals that are almost shows. They, they are held inside theaters. Um, the leadership is uh, diffuse. I'm, to be honest, I'm, I'm not really strong on the leadership of the Second Great Awakening because of these three different phases. It's tough for me to identify those right now. Yeah, uh, that's fascinating. So there's sort of, by the time the Second Great Awakening is sort of winding down, there's sort of a theatrical side of it. Uh, yes, are... in fact, um, well, there, there's always a bit of a theatrical nature to it because you've got, um, well, preaching. Once you get to a style of preaching that is engaging the emotions, it is by definition a certain degree of theatricality. Uh, George Garrick, who was the Shakespearean actor, legendary of his time, and he was huge, but, and he said he would give, uh, the quote is, I would give a hundred guineas if I could say the word, oh, like Whitfield, like this evangelical preacher. So, um, therefore, you get to the third phase of these revivals, and they're almost, I won't say kabuki theater, but um, they do become liturgical. And I think, you know, side note, I think that is a part of human nature. We, we get used to things. We develop patterns even con unconsciously. Whether, so there's other, whether explicit liturgy or... Uh, something more in, in, hidden in our patterns. I was going to mention, uh, you asked about the leadership, and there are some important people from right here on the, on the frontier who's, like Father Bally, names escape me suddenly. But, <laughs> as we're, but they're, you know, they're the people that are probably the most well-known in the, in the second phase, Lyman Beecher is one of those, and in the third phase, the big star in the third phase is Charles Grandison Finney. Finney. Yeah, right. He's yeah. the one who is, uh, he's almost, his reputation is a little besmirched by these accusations of theatricality, that he's, it seems more like show business, uh, that there's a great suspicion, right? If, you, if, if your religious experience, if your salvation in many ways is conditioned on an emotional response, you're going to be very suspicious of things that can artificially move your emotions, which is why, for example, in sub-movements, uh, uh, music can seem to be a little dangerous. I mean, to this day, there are branches of the Russian Orthodox Church that will oppose any kind of, of singing in harmony because that automatically triggers you know, physical strings in our emotions, and they don't want to confuse the two. And so you have some religious movements in the Restoration Movement that are very suspicious of instruments that prefer the clarity and simplicity, right back to the American Enlightenment, simplicity of uh, the voice. Some of the biggest churches now, some of the large megachurches, are sort of centered around music, this sort of rock concert 
persona that they put out there that's grounded in religion, but it's drawing people by huge numbers. Do you see that as a direct correlation? Absolutely. This theatricality again, Miley Cyrus, the great American thinker, Miley Cyrus, <laughs> who knows what she's doing. I mean, you got to pay attention. You pay attention to, you know, ABBA is accused of being cheeseball music, but look at the millions of albums they've sold. So they're doing something right, right? So Miley Cyrus once said that she doesn't go to church because she's already been to a concert. There's an awareness that of the theatricality of 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 the the concert, the 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 dramatic experience. And I don't, I'm not knocking those churches that are uh, focused or or hovering around the importance of music. I do think you know the. When, when Christ becomes incarnate, he takes on the entirety of human nature, including the human body, including, therefore, human emotions. So I, I don't think it's something to be suspicious of or certainly uh, mocking in any way. I mean, I choose hymns on Sunday with a certain focus of, of not only the content, but also the, the feeling. So I understand that. But, um, yeah, music can be a, a, a double-edged sword. Let's talk for a second uh, again about women. You touched on their role in the Second Great Awakening a little bit um, in terms of converting religious thought that they're hearing in these camp revivals and elsewhere and sort of manifesting that in the home. They're the ones who are sort of teaching the practical side of religion in the household. Uh, A 1932 study showed that three women for every two men converted during the early part of the Second Great Awakening. What's what's the reason for that? Why why are women converting in much larger numbers? Yeah, speaking of Miley Cyrus, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, I think a couple of things are going there. First, uh, well, let's start this way. Uh, Saint Teresa of Avila, who was the Spanish reformer and, and poet, 16th century, said, and that's obviously I'm paraphrasing, but she said that women or girls specifically tend to be more religious naturally than boys. By which I think she means, you know, she's a contemplative. She means that you see little girls that they, in general, gross generalizations here, but in general they have an easier time being still and being quiet than little boys. So therefore, there is something about the feminine nature that, uh, not just me saying that, that tends to be more naturally religious in this sense. So therefore, there's a greater openness. Secondly, um, in a culture where strong male leadership is the order of the day, this is an arena, a venue in which women uh, uh, can assert greater leadership. And it's not just because they are, not just because they're responsible primarily for the raising of the children. And I'm not saying men didn't do that too. I mean, these are units. Um, But not just because of the child rearing, but because of a greater sensitivity to the need for a healthy, sane environment for all the families. I think this is what uh, leads to some of these social reforms that come out of the Second Great Awakening and led by women, strong women, who are recognizing some of the ills of the society as threats, not just to people's souls, which is certainly, but also to the family structure, to the next generation of children. Yeah, and that's what I was I was about to ask. And is this kind of a chicken and or the egg scenario? Is do these social movements come about because of the the women that are participating in Second Great Awakening uh, become involved, or are the uh, the social movements of the Second Great Awakening actually drawing more women into the movement? I mean, it's a great question. I think I'm going to just stick my neck out and say that this comes from the emotional uh, sensibilities of 
the Second Great Awakening, awakening that it is based on this emotional experience that they've had of the presence of God and also a, a recognition that, that this is an arena in which women can assert leadership. By the way, compounded by uh, a turning away from the abstract, sterile theological presentation of other movements, right? That you've got this appeal to the natural, organic, uh, spiritual connection that St. Teresa was talking about, this draw. You fuse all that together and it suddenly becomes uh, uh, the temperance movement uh, of recognizing the devastating uh, impact that, that drinking was having, truly was having on some families, on some communities, um, you know, and other social reform movements uh, led by strong women uh, coming from this, and coming from, furthermore, this recognition that uh, with the imminent arrival of Christ, right, because the Second Great Awakening always, they talk much more about the arrival of Christ than the First Great Awakening. With the arrival of Christ to have a, a, a house fit for him, and so therefore a need to purge to winnow out these uh, negative influences on uh, the society. The things like temperance, yes. uh, temperance movement, some of these social movements that are happening. Temperance, uh, women's rights movement gets rolling Suffrage at this movement. point. Uh, I think the first women's rights convention, 1848, um, sort of in, in this time frame. Abolitionism is another one that's coming about uh, during this time. What, what about African-Americans in the midst of this, where free people of color ever a target for membership in any of the religious groups flourishing in the Second Great Awakening? Uh, and what about slaves, slavery yeah. as well? The, the uh, religious outreach to the African-American community, uh, well, of course, it predates the First Great Awakening. I mean, it's a complicated issue of what was happening during the period of slavery and spirituality. We've, we've talked about this before. But in the First Great Awakening, you have the first African-American Methodist preacher. Um, hang on, I'm going to have his name right quote-unquote, Black Harry Hosier, right? first African-American Methodist preacher. And what happens there is he actually is the, the driver, the, the coach driver of a white revivalist preacher. And along the way, he memorizes like the entire Bible. He's got this incredible capacity. And so he's preaching, and people hearing him preach talk about almost with suspicion, right, back to the suspicion of the emotional experience, even amongst the revivalists, that he has this captivating influence. And so years pass, and he's, he's seeking ordination, and he's turned down time and time and time again. So that ultimately, along with Richard Allen, together they form the uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church. So that's all kind of first great awakening. Uh, the Methodists, not only because of the, the black leadership of these denominations, uh, but also the uh, uh, Baptists are very comfortable and familiar addressing mixed congregations. Um, and so even as you see this in revivals, in the Second Great Awakening, you would start, you know, we talked about these multiple tents, the Bonnaroo experience, and you would have a certain tent area that was reserved for African-American uh, congregations. So they're having their separate revival, very similar in tone and style and spirit. But, and then on that third or fourth or fifth day of that uh, semi-week, they bring the entire community together. And so you have this, it gives me chills again to think about it, this, this visual and emotional representation of what the kingdom would look like if the union between the black and white communities under the banner of this evangelical powerful appeal. Um, I think another African-American who's very influential uh, in the latter stages of the Second Great Awakening uh, is Edmund Kelly, who is from right here in Columbia. He was the first ordained Baptist 
African-American Baptist minister in Tennessee uh, and uh, gets permission to travel to the Northeast of all places uh, and sort of becomes a banner for uh, African-American preachers in the Northeast. His family is held in bondage here in Columbia, Tennessee. uh, in the Walker family, James Walker, and but uh, through a series of letters, very powerful letters that he writes to James Walker, the quote-unquote owner of his wife and children, um, manages to get him to agree to sell uh, his wife and child uh, into freedom. And uh, it's an amazing, an amazing story. But he would go on to be uh, a very well-known preacher in the Baptist faith throughout New England. Uh, he educates his children in New England. Uh, and interestingly, they end up coming back to Columbia, Tennessee, uh, after the Civil War uh, to become teachers. They become very prominent teachers in this area. So I think that's a, a wonderful sort of full circle story uh, about what religion means, uh, certainly to the African-American community. It's really starting right here in, in Middle Tennessee. I, I've said so many times, Middle Tennessee is this crossroads of history. There's so much so much going on. And part uh, of what we're trying there. to do on the, the Circle Unbroken is to bring in uh, leaders of different faith communities, especially of different uh, traditions, certainly different denominations, but it's important to have you know, uh, white preachers and African-American preachers and, and emphasizing, because there are still some racial issues, certainly, that we are facing in our culture and even in our local community. This is a time when we can take advantage of our common need for some mutual support and actually get back to this era of, oddly enough, greater racial harmony in the context of a religious experience. Very quickly, as we have to wrap up, unfortunately, um, what are the chief outcomes as you see them? What, what are the great outcomes of the Second Great Awakening? I think that, um, you know, th- there is a cultural uh, 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 tension that is predates, you know, back from the Greek era between uh, D- Dionysius and Apollo. Apollo, the god of reason, uh, uh, wisdom and reason. He's, he has an arrow, so he shoots straight. And then Dionysius, who is this wild, drunken character. These two dynamics in the culture between rationality and enthusiasm. And what we see as a result of the Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening as well, is this, uh, the, the, the balance gets tipped very strongly towards the Dionysian. Um, it will come back, you know, to, to a rational mode. But for others, you know, the, the horse is out of the, out of the barn. Uh, the, the, the wild emotional experience now has been wide open. Uh, uh, therefore, you have things that are possible that, uh, in the culture of this immersion into profound emotional. Uh, you know, can you have even the 60s without the Second Great Awakening? I don't think so. And not just because of Woodstock, which was a tensite revival of its own. Uh, it is a recentering of the emotional identity uh, after the Revolutionary War and gearing up for the Civil War. Father Chris Bowie, thank you for joining us on History Zook. Thank you for having me. I leave you with a quote from Charles Charles Finney, one of the great leaders of the Second Great Awakening, from Lectures on Revivals of Religion. He says this, The will is, in a sense, enslaved by the carnal and worldly desires. Hence it is necessary to awaken men to a sense of guilt and danger, and thus produce an excitement of counterfeeling and desire, which will break the power of carnal and worldly desire, and leave the will free to obey God. Thank you to our sponsor, ServPro of Murray and Giles County, for their support. On behalf of Dr. Barry Gidcombe, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook.
Thank you for listening to History's Hook with Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. right here on WKRM 103.7 FM for a journey through time. Today's edition of History's Hook was sponsored by Pro of Murray and Giles County. Pro, faster to any disaster.